This week on Myths and Legends, it's Ragnarok, the doom of the gods, the end of Norse mythology, and you'll see how an interest in arts and crafts might just make you an undying legend, and how the best alcohol comes from that goat that hangs out on the roof. The creature this time is yet another example of why you do not want to get into wrestling matches with a hairy man who smells like yams. This is Myths and Legends, episode 88, Doom. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week, it's the end of all things, where we wrap up Norse mythology. We'll start with a little backstory, a quick overview of where we are in the story of Norse mythology. In Norse myth, there are nine worlds. The Aesir are the group of gods that rule over those nine worlds, from their world of Asgard. Odin, the Allfather, has already sacrificed his eye, and maybe life, to gain magic and knowledge of the future. In his visions, he sees the end of all things, the doom of the gods, known as Ragnarok, in which the nine worlds will be engulfed in ice and fire. Odin and his son Thor lead kind of a brutal campaign of genocide against the giants in their land, called Jotunheim. Functionally, the giants are very similar to the Aesir. In fact, Odin himself is half-giant, and Thor, his son, is three-quarters giant. Of course, Thor isn't their only child. Odin and his wife Frigg have multiple children, one of whom is Baldr. Frigg worries about Baldr so much that she secures an insurance policy, foreseeing everything on Earth to swear that they'll bring no harm to him. Because its small size doesn't appear threatening, or maybe because it's too young to swear an oath, mistletoe, yes, the plant, ends up being the only thing that does not swear not to hurt Baldr. It seems like Frigg has cleared a path for her son, except then a pickup game of fling deadly things and watch them bounce off of Baldr becomes the latest playground fad among the Aesir, thanks to a very low bar for entertainment. Enter Loki. He's an enigmatic trickster. We really don't know who he is or where he comes from, but he worms his way into the good graces of the Aesir and manages to become an honorary Aesir himself. He goes on to have three pretty monstrous children, the wolf, Fenrir, who's fated to turn on the Aesir, so the Aesir have him bound, and Tyr loses a hand in the chaos. The second child is Jormagandr, the serpent that encircles the oceans of the world, and becomes the eternal foe of Thor. The third child is Hel, the pale and deathly woman, who rules over the realm of the same name, the cold and forbidding place of the dishonored dead. Loki, their dad, is always getting into trouble, and it's really hard to pin down his motivations, doubly so when it comes to Baldr. Loki forms a spear from mistletoe and convinces Hodor, a blind Acer, to chuck it at poor Baldr. The music stops and the lights come on, revealing Baldr doubling over in pain, a spear of mistletoe protruding from his bloody stomach. He dies. For this offense and countless others, Odin and Thor catch Loki and bind him with his own son's entrails. Over his head, they affix a snake to slowly drip venom onto the misbehaving god. Luckily for Loki, however, his wife is there to catch it in a bowl. But unluckily, that bowl has a volume limit, and she has to stop and empty it occasionally. In those brief moments, when she pulls the bowl away, the venom hits Loki's face. It is then that Loki rises and pulls on his bonds, shaking the whole earth. The wind blew through Odin's hood as he trudged through the snow. It was already two feet deep, 
and he could no longer see 10 feet in front of him. Still, he walked familiar ground. He had seen this path enough times in his dreams. His nightmares. Odin pulled the cloak around him tighter and squinted his eye. There it was. The cave. Up ahead. It had been years. Countless years since he had been to this cave. He remembered what they did here. It was only after he murdered his friend's son and bound Loki in this cave that he had the vision. It was Loki screaming and writhing and playing on his bonds. Odin had seen it countless times since then, his prescience mocking him. Odin would hear the sound of the bonds snapping and wake up. The earthquakes were the sound of both comfort and shame. With each tremor, he recalled Loki still in the dark, screaming, weeping, and suffering. At the same time, Ragnarok, the visions of which no longer haunted his dreams alone, but seeped into his waking hours, grew closer each week. Because of his actions, Odin paused at the mouth of the cave, peering down into the darkness. There were no screams, no threats. It was silent. The earthquakes had stopped months ago. Odin didn't notice at first. It could be days in between episodes, after all. But Thor brought it up. And then Odin started watching for them. After a month, he knew he needed to make that voyage. That was when the snow started. In every possible vision, Odin had seen the snow in Midgard. He told himself that it was winter. It was supposed to snow in Midgard. But somewhere in the pit of his stomach, he knew. Now, seeing the snapped bonds, the cold and empty cave, the dead serpent, there was no mistaking that Ragnarok had begun. The doom of the gods was here. So, when does this happen? Thor asked, paring his fingernails as he sat before Odin's throne. Odin ignored the question. In truth, he didn't know. All he knew were his visions, and they were never wrong. But seriously, it's Loki. What's he going to do? I've thrown my hammer at his head so many times, and yet he isn't dead, Odin replied, without looking up. How many others can say that? Can anyone else say that? Thor thought about it in silence, as his dad continued. Thor had his hammer because of Loki. Odin his horse. Asgard had its walls because of Loki. Loki had killed Thor's brother, Odin's son. He may be anathema to everything the hypermasculine warrior tribe represented, but that hypermasculine warrior tribe wouldn't be anywhere without him. Now, he was loose, and there was no limit to what he could do. Just then... They heard a clang at the door. It was Vidar. Oh, don't mind me, the young Acer said. I'm just doing the shoe thing. Vidar was Thor's heretofore unmentioned younger brother and Odin's youngest son. Balder had his invulnerability. Thor had his hammer. The other son was created to avenge Balder, and Vidar had his shoe hobby. That's right. He traveled around Midgard and collected the leftover bits of people's shoes, random heels, and toe portions cut away during production. With them, he would form some sort of patchwork super shoes. He had spent decades collecting shoe bits, and with this latest haul, it looked like he was finally going to be finished. With one of the shoes. He was happy, though. When it came to assembling a shoe from trash from all over the Nine Worlds, 
It was about the journey, not the destination. He told his dad and brother how lucky he was to find anything on Midgard, because things were getting bad there. It was springtime, or it should be springtime. But the snows weren't easing up at all, and it wasn't getting any warmer. If anything, it was getting colder. The snow was getting deeper, and people were dying. Worse yet, for Thor at least, the giants were nowhere to be found. On one of his most recent vacations to Jotunheim, for some R&R killing giants, he found only the very old or very young working the farms. Taking a hammer to them was hardly as satisfying as taking out Jotunheim's strongest. I mean, he still did, but it just wasn't as fun. Plus, he had a massive whetstone wedged in his forehead, and the giants were to thank for that. Still, it was a mystery. At the news, Odin grew even quieter, retreating deeper into his own thoughts. Finally, Odin stood, and, without a word, left the room. He had to check on something. He had to go to Valhalla. The Valkyries flew, carrying men to Valhalla. One after another arrived in increasing numbers, especially after all the wars on Midgard. And this was only half of the honored dead. The other half was with Gold Greed, or Freya, on the plains of Folkvinar. They were all being prepared for the day the wolf came, and that day was quickly approaching. Just below the incoming Valkyries stood the thorny oak that loomed over Valhalla, the largest hall that would ever exist. In it were countless smaller halls, as well as, according to one version, Thor's house, with a whopping 540 additional rooms. A goat lounged on the roof, munching on oak leaves, its udders resting on the many shields interlocking to form shingles atop Valhalla. The golden liquid flowed constantly from our udders, down to the ridges that ran into the building. Odin entered Valhalla, to see a rowdy crowd partying all around. After a morning of heavy drinking, the warriors would leave the hall, and go fight outside all day. After fighting outside all day, they come back in, for a dinner of heavy drinking, and then a night of heavy drinking. A steady supply of mead flowed from the ceiling, and if you're wondering how they got enough mead for thousands of epic Norse warriors, well, that's what was flowing out of the goat's udders. The rafters of Valhalla were made from spears, and mail coats covered every bench. The warriors of Valhalla all knew, on some level, why they were there. They would fight for the Allfather, Odin, one more time against the wolf. Someday. Some have been there for hundreds of years, drinking, fighting, and partying. Maybe their resolve was as strong as when they arrived. Maybe they thought the day might never come. Maybe they didn't care, in light of the very strong all-you-can-drink mead flowing from the goat on the roof. Regardless, they spent their days fighting, drinking, and waiting. Shrouded as an elderly, bearded beggar, Odin shuffled among the warriors in the hall. He was among the greatest warriors ever, and everyone knew he did this sort of thing all the time. So, they let him have his moment, and pretended not to recognize him. Odin looked on the men, one after another, laughing and drinking and talking. Soon enough, their faces would be covered in looks of grim determination, and the blood of their fellow warrior. Soon, there would be no more laughing, and so, he let them have this moment. Odin's next stop was the plains of Folkvinar, the lands of Freya. Things were still a bit touchy with her after he burned her alive three times and went to war against her people. They had mostly gotten better, and Odin had even heard that she had helped Thor and Loki time and time again with her hijinks. 
Still, she didn't need to know he was there poking around and looking at Folkvenar. He would need to be quiet, remain invis- Hi, Odin, Freya yelled out, standing up from her throne where she watched the daily fighting in the fields. Yeah, you, the Odinic Wanderer, she said, pointing at the guy who was very clearly Odin, making a who-me face. Odin, please. I invented that grift. Besides, when a bearded, stooped, one-eyed beggar stops by, it's always you, Freya continued, as she fluttered to the ground in her hawk cloak. Odin put away his disguise, and the pair sat down to some mead. He told her that the end was coming, to which she replied that he was always saying that. He insisted that this time was different, because Loki had escaped. But Freya replied that he was always escaping. Odin explained that it had snowed for two straight seasons in Midgard, to which Freya replied that it was Scandinavia. Wasn't it kind of always snowing? Odin's shoulders slumped. Freya was more understanding than most on the subject of Ragnarok, but even she didn't believe him. That is, until the world shuddered. It wasn't like the earthquakes of Midgard when Loki thrashed against his bonds. Besides, they didn't get earthquakes in Asgard. This was very different. Everything, the trees, the halls, even the gods, shuddered. Every branch and root of the world tree, and the millions living, dead, and dying in Midgard after months upon months of relentless cold, shuddered. Even the shades in Helheim felt the rumble. Empty buildings on the border of Jotunheim shook dust from their rafters, and somewhere, on a hill where the blood of tears still stained the ground, dwarven made bonds they slashed. Fenrir, Loki's monstrous wolf son, was loose. It was then that they heard it, a horn blowing from Asgard. It was Heimdall, the Watcher, and something was at their walls. The sky darkened, and the clouds began sweeping away as Freya looked on in shock. The men and women in the field stared in awe. Odin hung his head. It was over. It was all over. With another immense shudder, a shadow crept across the sky from one edge to the other. In unison, the nine worlds watched as the darkness took shape. It was a wolf. It was the wolf. Fenrir was loose. He had grown since Odin had him bound long ago. And Odin knew what would happen next. He knew because he had seen it countless times in his visions and his nightmares. Fenrir's eyes glowed, his mouth opened, and in one arc, he swallowed the sun. Instantly, Asgard fell into the complete darkness of night. Just before Fenrir dipped below the horizon and disappeared, Odin caught the beast's glowing eyes. The only thing still visible in the sky looked directly at him. He knew, and Odin knew. It had only begun, and yet, it was already over. With this, Odin knew that he would soon die. Still, he would fight. It might be pointless. It might not make any difference, but he would not surrender. Even in the face of a battle, he knew he would lose. He would lead the Acer until the very end. We'll resume the ending of the world, but that 
We'll be right after this. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, now back to the show. Those still live on Midgard, after the wars and the never-ending snow, looked to the sky in horror as the sun disappeared and the world dropped into that one final and eternal night. The dwarves shut their stone doors for the last time. The warriors in the hall of Valhalla saw the sky and knew that the time of the wolf had arrived. They took up their arms, beat their shields, and bellowed their war cries, rushing through Valhalla's countless doors designed for this single purpose to allow them out all at once to serve the Allfather in this final battle. Freya flew ahead of her own warriors from the plains of Folkvenar. Odin was right. On some level, she had always believed him about Ragnarok, but it became real the moment the wolf actually appeared. She and her warriors swiftly made their way to the Bifrost, the rainbow bridge that connected the world of the humans to the world of the Aesir. Of the numerous times she had heard Odin review the future events of Ragnarok, really, the man was obsessed, she knew that was where it would all begin. That was where Surt would appear. Surt the giant, the demon that stood guard over the mysterious realm of Muspelheim, home of the fire giants, was coming. Muspelheim was older than nearly all the other realms, and when it met the ice world of Niflheim, creation was sparked. The fire giants weren't like the giants of Jotunheim. The etymology of Muspelheim is uncertain, but there's a possibility that it means the world destroyers so you can probably see why Thor took exactly zero trips there and went after the Jotun of Jotunheim instead. Odin arrived back at Asgard and found the gods ready. The sky remained an endless void of night. Even the stars had disappeared. And also a ship of toenails had arrived in the harbor. A son of Muspelheim stood at the helm, a giant that came first as a warning. It took several Aesir to kill the fire giant before boarding a ship and then immediately disembarking because it was made of toenails. When anyone died with unclipped toenails in Midgard, the world of the humans, the toenails went into building the largest ship to ever exist, called Nagelfar. The prose Edda simply says that it's a ship of toenails that no one really wants to see completed, probably because it's a harbinger of the end times, and also probably because it was a ship made out of toenails. Ew. All the Aesir, even Thor, were in a panic the worlds that they had ruled for centuries, millennia, were now rising up against them. Odin looked on his sons, Thor, Vali, and Vidar, his wife, Frigg, and all the other Aesir. His warriors from Valhalla were there too, as were Freya and her warriors, the elves and the dwarves, those that hadn't hidden in their mountains or palaces, gathered as well. They had been hearing Odin's warnings for years, and now everything was coming to pass, just like he said. If he was to be believed, then they would all die on this day. But if there was a chance they could fight against their fate and defy their doom, then they would do so. Another rumble began to shake the ground. Odin and Thor looked at each other. They knew exactly what it was. There were giants in the land.
Visible beyond the wall was a host of giants, more than Odin or Thor even knew existed. They gathered menacingly outside the walls of Asgard, led by a familiar face, one that, pre-binding, had always been half-smirking. Now, half-disfigured by poison, it was grim. Loki led the giants. The world shuddered again, and in the darkness of the sky behind Loki, two eyes opened. The same two eyes that had watched Odin. The same two eyes that had been the only thing visible in the sky after the sun went dark. Fenrir threw back his head and howled. Odin didn't need eyes to know what happened next. No one did. They could all hear the deep cracking, the sound of the Bifrost, the rainbow bridge to Midgard, the world of the humans, was crumbling. Surt, the fire giant, was on his way. Odin took a deep breath and reached for his golden helmet. The day that he had dreaded most, the day that he would die, was here. But, despite facing an unambiguously certain death, he would stand. And, while there was still life left in his body, he would face it. Turning to his sons, his friends, his wife, and his men, he nodded. It was time. His epic action movie level resolve began to melt. However, as a low rumble from the harbor announced yet another problem, Jormagandr, the world serpent, Loki's child that Odin himself had thrown into the sea. Soon, the serpent had encircled the entire world and became the destroyer of ships that strayed too far from land. And now, he was here, in Asgard. He matched Fenrir in size and rose from the harbor, ready to strike. Very quickly, the Aesir found themselves surrounded on all fronts. Before them, the giants and Fenrir marched toward their home. To the side sat the world serpent with its poison. They couldn't fight one without leaving themselves vulnerable to the other. A heavy hand rested on Odin's shoulder, startling him out of his thoughts. Thor. He was saying that he would go. He would fight the world serpent. Alone. Odin stared at Thor as a sad smile passed briefly over his face. He knew that this would be the last time he saw his son, and he had nothing but pride for the man that Thor had become. Words failed Odin. There was nothing he could say to change Thor's mind, he knew. A sad smile passed on Thor's face as well, as he told his father that he would see him when this whole thing was over. He pulled his hammer from his cloak and took off full speed toward the serpent. Odin couldn't watch it, he didn't need to watch it. He had seen it enough times in his visions. Besides, there was no time to stay and watch. There were armies at the gate. Odin, Heimdall, and the others rode out across the plains in front of Asgard, stealing glances at the giants who, having spotted the tiny Acer outside their walls, began to stomp and shake the ground around them. There would be no talking, no negotiations. They had come together for one thing, the extinction of the Acer. Thor had never sought to negotiate when he went to Jotunheim and kicked down the doors of the giants' houses to murder them. The only consideration the giants might give the Acer was a quick death. And even that was unlikely. I picture Loki looking on Odin with a sadistic smile as the All-Father approaches, saying, Well, well, well. It looks like the tables have to... Wait. Wait, where's he going? 
Why is he riding past me? Odin? Odin. I had a whole speech planned. Man. They both knew Loki wouldn't win that fight. That wasn't Loki's skill set, and Odin, now focused on the one thing he knew he had to do, rode right past the trickster, and to the wolf that lingered in the darkness of the night. But Loki didn't have much of a chance to be too disappointed when he turned back around. Heimdall, the Watcher of Asgard, hit him square in the face and knocked him off his horse. Elsewhere, Surt, the fire giant walking across the creaking and cracking Bifrost Bridge, roared. Fire shot from his mouth and eyes, spewing across the plains of Vigrid, where they fought. It snaked on the Bifrost Bridge and down toward the world of men. It touched the roots and branches and bark of the world tree and spread among the nine worlds. Surt stepped hard on the Bifrost, cracks spreading like wildfire down the length of the bridge. Right before it shattered, the entire bridge burst into flames, igniting the world of the humans. Quick to recover, Loki sprang to his feet and glared at his opponent. So it was Heimdall, the watcher that hit him, was it? He spat blood and sneered. This guy again? They had fought before, when Loki had stolen Freya's cloak and turned into a seal. Heimdall had won, but only because it was really hard to fight as a seal. Now, though, Heimdall, single H, stood between Loki and the conquest of Asgard. Heimdall blinked, and suddenly there were two Lokis. He blinked again, and there was just one, tossing a knife between his hands. It was a trick that Loki played all the time. He wasn't in front of Heimdall, but on his side, invisible, calmly walking up to Heimdall. It's a trick that would work on anyone, except Heimdall. Heimdall was the watchman who could hear grass growing. He saw everything in the Nine Worlds, even in the din of battle. Loki might as well be walking on air horns. Heimdall ignored the illusion approaching his front, turned, and stabbed to his side. The illusion disappeared, and he saw the shocked face of Loki, staring down at Heimdall's sword, protruding from his abdomen. Loki shot a glance toward Asgard, bright with flames, at Thor, battling the serpent, and at Odin, fighting the wolf. He was dying on the precipice of his greatest victory, but at least the Aesir would burn with him. It had always been fated that he and Heimdall would be each other's end, too. Loki looked up at Heimdall and burst into laughter. He grabbed the sword by the hilt, holding it there, even though it sliced his hand to the bone. He took out one of his knives and nicked Heimdall's hand. When it was done, he let go of the sword and slid backward, collapsing hard on the ground. Soon, the fires would take him. Soon, it would all be over. Heimdall furrowed his brow. That was weird. Laughing with the sword protruding from your stomach was classic Loki, though. He took one step and found that he could not take another. He was stuck to the battle plane, and the ground dipped and swerved beneath him. His arms went slack, and the sword clanged to the ground. He tried to shout, to curse Loki, but only foam and spit came from his mouth. As his legs buckled, and he, too, collapsed to the ground. If he could raise his arms, he would have seen the tiny cut on his hand the one that Loki had given him, already bubbling and turning black. 
the poison had done its work, as Heimdall died. In the moment just before his eyes went dark, he caught sight of the wolf, Fenrir, salivating and loping toward Odin. Odin gripped his spear. Now that this moment was here, Odin knew what he must do. He would die this day. He knew this. But there was one more thing he could do. It would be his final act as king. His final act as Allfather. He would save the worlds from the wolf. The wolf came within feet of Odin, snarling and barking before his prey. A single tooth was as big as Odin's entire body. Odin narrowed his eye, raised his spear, and smacked the wolf in the face. It yelped and recoiled. And for a moment, the battle stopped. Odin looked back at his son, Vidar, nodded, and lowered his spear. The wolf was outraged and howled again. He honed in on Odin and lunged so fast as to eat Odin in one bite. Odin looked upon the gaping blackness of the open mouth, toward a death that had always been his. All of his striving and straining and fear, all of his plans and tricks and battles, they had all led him here. In a moment, he was without fear. For the first time since his visions began, he was exactly where he was supposed to be. Vidar heard the crunch of the Allfather's bones as the wolf closed his mouth on Odin. Odin, the Allfather and King of the Gods, was dead. Vidar screamed out for Odin and fought past the giants alongside the warriors from Valhalla and Folkvanar. He was going to avenge his father, even if it cost him his life. He didn't know of anything that could withstand the bite of Fenrir Except, maybe. Ten minutes later, Vidar appeared, half walking, half hobbling, uneven. The shoe in his left foot being larger than that of his right. It was his shoe, his weird little hobby shoe. It would withstand the bite of Fenrir. Maybe. It was a shot in the dark, but it would be pretty inspiring if it worked. With Odin's blood fresh on its canines, Fenrir spotted Vidar and started running toward him. The monster opened and lowered its mouth to scoop up the young god. Vidar was nearly in the wolf's mouth when Fenrir felt it. The shoe. Vidar stomped down on the lower jaw of the wolf, pinning it to the ground. Before it could react, Vidar had the upper teeth in his hands. Summoning the strength that was his birthright, Vidar snapped the wolf in half at his jaws. The wolf yipped, while it's still at a windpipe. The whole battlefield paused once again to watch the wolf, the one who had eaten the sun, heaped on the ground, in pieces. A shout went up from Freya and the warriors of Valhalla and Folkvanar. The wolf was dead. Everyone returned to battle the giants with renewed gusto. Thor, off in the harbor, heard the cheer and grinned. At least the fight was going well for some of them. Jormagandr, almost as tired as Thor was, swooped down to take another hit at the son of Odin. Thor had nearly lost an arm and with the sheer blunt force of his hammer, Thor had taken off Jormungandr's tail, but neither of them would quit now. They had been waiting for this for years. The World Serpent swept and rolled his body across the harbor, missing Thor, but leveling large swaths of Asgard with each hit. Thor flung his hammer at the monster, but the beast always blocked it with his body. The hammer punched nasty holes, but the serpent was the size of the world, thus the name. So it was like mere pinpricks. The serpent spewed poison at Thor. It was good that he kept Jormagandr away from the main battle, 
a single hit of poison could end it all, and this thing would be the last ruler of the Nine Worlds. Hearing the crowds and seeing the dead wolf off in the distance, Thor knew his father had died. It was part of the prophecy that he was always going on about. Now, Thor was the only thing standing between the worlds and this serpent. He dreaded it, but he knew what he had to do. The next time Jormungandr swept the mangled stump that used to be his tail, Thor didn't avoid it. He jumped aboard. The serpent was an animal, and Thor, though exhausted, was still fast. The beast didn't have arms or any way to get Thor off of him, except for his teeth. Like an animal with its hand caught in a trap, it bit and thrashed at Thor, but when it missed Thor, it was biting itself, and it tore large chunks from its own side as Thor continued running up it toward the head. When he was finally at the world serpent's head, he was on the one place that was safe from the beast, but he didn't rest. He couldn't, gripping the snake's scales. Thor raised his hammer to the sky and struck downward. Lightning struck the world serpent as Thor pounded into the snake. When he was past the scales, he could feel the poison that coursed through the thing's body, seeping into his own skin, burning him, killing him. Still, he pressed on. He hammered and hammered until he was through the thing's skull. It thrashed and hissed. It spewed poison and writhed over what was left of Asgard. A lot of things can be said about Jormungandr, but at least it died doing what it loved. Killing stuff. The serpent's body went slack, and it crashed to the ground. Thor had hit the snake with everything he had left, and he rolled to the ground. Hig used all of his energy to kill the serpent, and now he could barely raise to his elbows. He looked on his home, Asgard, burning and in ruins. He was watching the passing of an age, the end of his world. He died facing and defeating his greatest enemy. He hadn't shirked away, but bravely marched on, knowing that he was going toward his doom. The last thought that Thor had, right before his eyes went dark, was that this, this was a good death. People largely ignored Loki as he slowly bled out on the field, but he saw the fruits of his labors all around him. He saw Tyre get overmatched by a hound. He saw Frey get cut down by Surt, the giant who started the fires that now consume the worlds. He saw Freya fall commanding the men and women of Valhalla and Folkvenar. Loki, after losing his son, being bound by the Aesir in torment, well, he just wanted the worlds to burn. And now they were, and he did with them. Loki laughed as the fires of Surt consumed him. And the worlds burned. The light elves in their palaces in the sky, and the dark elves in their underground tunnels turned to ash. The doors of stone built by the dwarves would never open again. Those who survived years of turmoil and strife on Midgar clung to each other as the fires consumed their world. And all over the great plain of Asgard, where the Acer and the giants had clashed, the fires spread and they burned away the bodies of Fenrir, Thor, Frigg, Sif, Loki, Jormungandr, Surt, and more. The time of the gods was at an end. And the worlds, finally, were quiet. No more laughing, talking, or singing. No more screaming, yelling, or crying. Each of the nine worlds was an ash-caked, burned-out husk. 
a result of the hatreds of a time gone by. The End. The worlds were quiet for a time, without humans or gods to build or fight upon it. It was almost peaceful. And then, from the ashes, a single green bud arose. It thrived under the light of a new sun, one that had been born from the old, and it shined brighter and warmer than its mother. From a pile of rubble came a cough, and a form rolled over in the ash. It was Vidar. He had been covered by the hulking body of Fenrir, the wolf and somehow survived the flame that consumed everything else. He looked on the field, now little more than a field of ash, and his shoulders slumped. For a long time, he was the only one. He had heard his father talk of Ragnarok, how it would be the end, but his father never talked of what came after. What was he supposed to do now? Then he heard another cough, one that he recognized. He rushed to it. It was Valley. Valley, if you remember, was one of Odin's other sons, born for the purpose of avenging Baldur. He, too, had survived the end. There were two more as well, who came over the horizon, from the ruins that had once been the greatest city in the Nine Worlds. Thor's sons, Modi and Magni, were bewildered. Wasn't everyone supposed to be dead? They sat confused, until they were joined by a fifth and final survivor, not a survivor. He had died a long, long time ago. And some would argue that his death had started this whole thing. Baldur saw his brothers and nephews and smiled. He had survived the burning of hell and could once more rejoin the world of the living. All four of them. With the last of the gods sitting on the remains of their world, Modi and Magni thought of something. They ran to where the harbor used to be. It took them nearly an hour of sifting through ash, but they found it. Mjolnir, their father's great hammer. They dusted ashes from it and lifted it to the sky. Somewhere beyond the horizon, thunder rumbled. When they returned, the sons of Odin were laughing and talking, remembering their father and brother. The sons of Thor put the hammer down in the center and joined the conversation, remembering Loki and Freya, Sif and Frigg, even the giants they had fought. It had been a time of wonder, a time of gods. It had also been a time of pain, of bloodshed. As the survivors, they could start again. The sons of Thor could be strong like their father, but also just. The sons of Odin could be smart like their father, but not devious and selfish. Their fathers were great, but they were also flawed. They had built Asgard but they had also destroyed it. As the sons of Odin and Thor looked on the remnants of a time gone by, they knew that they could be great like their fathers, and they could be better. In time, the plants and trees of Midgard were again flourishing. Animals emerged from their holes and homes. The world was new, all trace of humanity had been swept away. Well, not all trace. One man, named Leif, awoke to find himself in a beautiful land of plants and animals of all kinds. Not far from him, a woman, Lithrasir, found herself in the very same situation. 
they met eyes and ran to each other, but not before being stunned by the beauty of the world around them. They couldn't believe it. For all they knew, they were the last two people left alive. Now, they were the first two people of a new world, which was as bountiful and as beautiful as a garden. She took his hand, and they looked out, together, toward the rising sun. The story of Ragnarok is both hopeful and a warning. It's hopeful because after so much death, destruction, and pain, there's a new dawn. Life springs from the ashes, and unlike the world before it, that was quite literally born in conflict after Odin brained his grandpa and made the ocean out of his blood, this one begins with a group that knows the destructive power of hate, yet doesn't harbor the same conflict as before. They don't have the prejudice and hate of their parents but instead see how those can actually destroy their world. Maybe, just maybe, there's a chance for them to get it right. The other side, the warning, is ominous. Yes, there can be a brighter tomorrow after conflict, but we're alive now. The story of Ragnarok is a lot of things, but to me, it's the story of how long-running resentments and hatred finally boiled over into a world-ending event. Odin tries to stop it, but none of his solutions are based on peace with the Jotun or Muspel, just winning. And, as always happens, his attempts to avoid or forestall Ragnarok lead directly to it. Even though it's nice to think that humanity might rise from the ashes of our own mistakes, to the sun dawning on a better tomorrow, free from the ingrained hate that brought us to that place, we should really want to make peace now, to stop Ragnarok before it begins. other announcements. If you haven't checked out Fictional yet, there are seven episodes on the feed, and this week we did part one of The Call of Cthulhu. It's creepy and fun, and if you're one of the many people who reached out asking us to cover Cthulhu on Myths and Legends, well, there it is. You can go to fictional.fm or just search for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. I also put a link in the show notes. The creature this week is the Kenmoon from Japanese folklore. The Kenmoon is a small, ape-like creature that has a built-in flashlight, but not the good kind that you like. It has a concave head where it stores oil, and it can make fire from its fingertips to light the oil for a very effective and probably very painful headlamp. They live in the mountains of Japan and just spend their days playing in sumo wrestling. After all that sumo wrestling, they tend to work up a sweat, and their hairy bodies apparently reek of yams. Aside from the intense body odor, they're pretty good to humans, well, unless you cut down their tree, in which case your eyes will swell until you go blind and die. Otherwise, they just like to share their hobby of sumo wrestling. They know you'll love it, and they're really insistent that you try it, right now, as soon as you meet them on the road. And you might be tempted to sumo wrestle that tiny, strange, hairy man with the glowing head in the forest. And you should have known that was a bad idea before I even finished that sentence. They're small, so they look beatable, except that the liquid in their head is magic. So as long as it's in there, they can't be beaten. They are as stupid as they are polite, though. So simply bowing to them will prompt a return bow, and you can sumo wrestle that Ken Moon off the road and promptly get back to not getting into wrestling matches with hairy strangers. If you just don't want to deal with them at all, 
There are easy ways and there are hard ways. The easy way is to take advantage of its extreme self-consciousness in regard to its yam-heavy scent. Just walk through the forest wondering aloud if someone farted. And I'm not joking about that at all. One source said exactly that. They will be so self-conscious about their smell that they don't want to approach you at all. The hard way? Octopus friends. Apparently their mortal enemies are octopi, and constantly having an octopus in your bag on the ready to throw at any fire-headed hairy guys wanting to wrestle you on the road at night is pretty sound advice. If you don't have an octopus, well, they are so afraid of the creatures that even just walking around and loudly pretending you have a pet octopus in your bag is enough to forestall their unwanted wrestling matches. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Loot Crate for sponsoring us this week. On a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles, Loot Crate has it. And if you're more of a fanatical fashionista, then try Loot Wear for monthly wearables and accessories with cult classics and your favorite franchises. Be the envy of your friends and get your 100% exclusive crates at lootcrate.com legends. And enter my code, LEGENDS, to save $3 off of any new subscription. And remember, November's Loot Crate theme is Unite 2.0. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>